This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Donald Trump looks prepared to be indicted again, this time, over the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We'll go in-depth. American tourists are roasting in Southern Europe. We're going to talk with the travel expert. Also, some new fashions for Furby. I always thought, I'm one of those people, call me crazy, I always thought Furby needed new fashion. You're crazy. Okay. We start, <laughs> I'll accept that. We, we, <laughs> you said it was okay. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. We start uh, with word that Donald Trump could very soon be indicted in connection with the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Joining us now is former federal prosecutor David Katz, now a criminal defense attorney in Beverly Hills. David, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Charles and Rob. So uh, when somebody gets one of those letters, you know what I'm talking about, one of those letters that says you are a target of our investigation, that is never good, is it? No, this is awful. I represent people who get letters like that. The Department of Justice has to send them, unless it's an unusual case where the uh, client might be a flight risk or something like that. But in a white-collar case, this is the opportunity for a target of the investigation to know that he or she is a target and to testify in front of the grand jury and give their side of the story. Now, the reality is that the grand jury is a star chamber. It's very one-sided. And so almost every client declines to testify in front of the grand jury. You don't even have a lawyer in there. But they have to give them that opportunity. The Department of Justice does. It looks good. Uh, But the reality is it tells you that in about a week or two normally, uh, you are going to be indicted. And not someone else, but you, because you got the letter. Trump apparently got it on Sunday He met with his lawyers. He self-reported it on his social media. And now it looks like we'll have yet a third uh, trial that's going to be scheduled. There's going to be a trial in this case in a week or two, I believe, after the indictment is returned. I believe that will be in Washington, D.C. There's, of course, the case down in the Southern District of Florida in front of Judge Cannon that's being heard, I believe, still as we speak. And there's, of course, the New York case regarding the hush money payments. That's in state court, but also brought by a grand jury. Uh, Knowing what you know, if you know anything about Jack Smith, uh, do you think that this is a signal that uh, Jack Smith has, has, uh, as they might say, got the goods? Well, I think that he has the goods because a lot of these offenses were committed in plain sight. I mean, we all saw the insurrection on January 6th. We saw that Trump sat around. At best for Trump, he sat around for three and a half hours while these folks were marauding The supporters of his were marauding the Capitol and threatening to hang Mike Pence, and he did nothing. He did nothing to tamp it down. That's his best case scenario. Then there's the speech that he gave. There's all the other insurrectionary uh, actions that I believe that he took. On top of that, this case will encompass efforts to overturn the elections in various states, which kind of overlaps with the efforts in Georgia. But there were efforts to overturn the elections in other states. And of course, there were the slates. There were the illegitimate slates, not the true slates. But these slates that kind of got cobbled together and concocted and did all of these strange things. And uh, so I believe all of that will be part of the charges. There may also be the efforts to undermine the Department of Justice. Remember firing uh, Barr and then firing the top officials who replaced Barr and trying to replace them with sort of a nobody who was number six in the Department of Justice, but who would vault over the others and do Trump's bidding. So all of that, I think, will be in this indictment. And of course, there'll be co-defendants. And not just one like there is with the valet down in Florida, but I, I believe there'll be some 
big name co-defendants in the insurrection January 6th case so, be brought in a week or two. So here's the, the problem, though, David. There's a legal issue, legal problem here, obviously. And then there's the political one, right? Uh, Mr. Trump has already uh, characterized this latest news, which, as we've talked about, is likely to lead to, lead to another uh, indictment against him as being part of an effort, ongoing effort, to thwart the next election, which he feels confident he's going to win. And millions of Americans uh, believe that, and, and they honestly believe that. Um, how do we as a country solve that not legal problem, but political problem, which may in the end be more important than the legal one? Well, you know, I, I commentate on uh, some foreign media and uh, foreigners, especially in Europe, uh, they're just flabbergasted because they have a different system. But people here, we've come to understand now that these investigations and indictments have been going on. None of them bars Trump from serving as president if he were to win the election in November 2024. None of them bars him from doing that. And the people who think that he'll be so inconvenienced that he'll, uh, you know, he'll flop as a candidate, his lawyers need to be in court. Except for the arraignment, he personally does not need to be in court. He can do all of his rallies. He can run on this. But what's the alternative? I mean, the special counsel believes that this is justice. I agree with him on that, that these are cases that are, I think, the case down in Florida and I think this case are really overwhelming against Trump. What's he supposed to do? Not bring them? He's the special counsel. He has a mandate to indict if he believes it's proper. He believes it's proper to indict. He's going to try to get the cases to trial. But in my judgment, Neither of these federal cases is going to get to trial before November 2024. And that's not because someone's favoring Trump. It's because they really are complex cases. They involve multiple issues. They involve national security issues. Uh, and they truly do uh, take a year or two in the best case to get to trial. And, of course, the election is what now, a year and three months away, four months? Yep. That's uh, former federal prosecutor David Katz. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Roasting in Rome, melting in Madrid. We're not talking about food, my friends. We're talking about people. And we'll look at the extreme heat in Europe and how it's impacting American tourists. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Along with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. Uh, coming up, you know, it is kind of like America in miniature. On one side, you've got this version of reality. On the other side, a completely different version of reality. And, of course, you've got the dueling press releases. We're talking about who might be winning the PR battle in the SAG after a strike against producers. Right now, we've got a heat wave here, but nothing like in southern Europe, where the temperatures are soaring to record levels. So where does it leave American tourists on their trips of a lifetime? With us now is business travel expert Joe Brancatelli, who has his own website called Joe Sent Me. Hey, Joe. Hello, Charles. Hello, Rod. Good to see you. And um, aren't we happy we're in the relatively balmy 90 degrees? <laughs> yeah, just yeah. so nice and cool and relaxed. So here's the problem. Uh, a lot of people, I was reading some statistics earlier, that this is turning out to be quite a, a summer in Europe. Lots of Americans are planning or are now in the middle of a European vacation because obviously many of them couldn't go during the height of the uh, pandemic years. But we Americans, we're pretty used to having, you know, air conditioning from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. That ain't so in a lot of Europe, is it? It's it's not It's not standard in most of Europe. And this heat wave 
is going from Spain right to Turkey, including the Balkans. Um, and the best way to describe it is the Sahara is actually creeping up into Europe. Huh. This is all caused by winds from the Sahara. So not only is it unbelievably hot, it was 107 degrees, I think, in Rome today at the height. It's 90 degrees now at uh, 10 p.m. Okay. There's very little air conditioning in many places. Many of the buildings that house visitors are jury-rigged palazzos, let's say, in Italy from the 17th and 18th century. So, you know, the water doesn't always work. The air conditioning doesn't always work. And you have the situation in many small communities and even big cities where you've got close-in city streets surrounded by stone buildings on both sides. So it basically becomes a heat oven all day and all night. Like, it, it like is, a brick the conditions oven. are brutal. Absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you've ever been to Rome or to Barcelona or, or to parts of Istanbul or you name the city, the streets are narrow because they were made for ox carts, not cars. And the buildings just radiate heat all night. And we're talking 30, 35 degrees higher than standard. Right. July and, is generally the hottest months. And, you know, so we're in some place we're talking about 110 degrees. I think somebody registered, I forget where, maybe it was a rock uh, somewhere, registered 135 degrees. And even in buildings where you ostensibly have air conditioning, like a modern building, uh, what if the power infrastructure there can't handle it? The power goes out. You've got 135 degrees, or it feels like it, and you've got people stuck inside. They can't go outside because it's too hot. Uh, I think we're going to have some health issues and, and maybe some possible fatigue. Well, Rob, they, they said about 60,000 people died in last year's heat wave in Europe. This is worse. And the one thing you actually don't have to worry about is the power grid going out because the air conditioning really is so bad. There's not that much drawing onto it. The problem for Americans who are visiting, who didn't learn the lesson of you're not in school anymore, you don't have to take your vacation in July and August <laughs> when it's hottest, okay, is that you didn't go to Rome or Catalonia or Istanbul or Athens, which is literally burning, to go sit in your hotel room all day, even if it has air conditioning. You want to be out on the streets. You go out on the streets. It's sweltering. The buildings are hot. The streets are hot. The streets are crowded with people who maybe don't have enough deodorant because they have to roll their Europeans. Whoa. Oh, this is not Whoa. A, wow. again, my, my name is Brancatelli. I can say that. Okay? <laughs> the Europeans are not used to this. We're, okay? we're going to get emails um, from Europe. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we'll be able to, to read me, them. Know, but... And we can talk. Joe, but, but uh, let me ask you, in, in terms of, of a strategy, two, two, a sort of two-pronged question. One, is there anything, if someone is determined, an American is determined, despite everything that they've just heard, to make that summer, you know, trip of a lifetime to very hot Europe, is there anything they can do to try to mitigate the misery of the heat? And the second part to that question, Joe, is would travel insurance cover you if you decide to cancel because of a heat wave? Well, first part of your question is if you're going despite everything we've talked about, I'm not sure we can help you, but the obvious <laughs> point is Make sure your accommodations at least claim to have air conditioning. Don't go into a place you know has no air conditioning, which many hotels in Europe do not have, just as they don't have elevators. Um, and certainly be prepared to be super hydrated at all times. Um, you're looking at conditions in, in central Rome or Athens 
much like the desert or much like Phoenix, except Phoenix has misters and air conditioning everywhere. Second part of your question depends on the travel insurance. What I, I've seen no travel company, travel insurance company say this is covered right now. The only travel insurance that would cover you would be cancel for any reason insurance. And that's the most expensive type. So, you know, best chance is think about October. Yeah, there you go. It's uh, cool. Business travel expert Joe Brancatelli, thanks for joining us. Now, you know, the uh, SAG-AFTRA strike and the writers' strike, too, right? I mean, the combined strikes, uh, they impact not just writers, and we've talked about this, not just writers and, and actors, but a host of industries that rely on motion picture production, television production to make a living. And uh, we have been highlighting on this show uh, various aspects of, of that. And when we come back, we are going to talk to a local company that makes its living or is now trying to make its living building those sets that you see when you watch a film. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. You know, there's a lot of concern among uh, some of the local industries, and as we cover this uh, SAG-AFTRA and uh, WGA strike in Hollywood, uh, we are highlighting from time to time different industries that are being affected uh, by these strikes. Joining us now is Mike Orth, who was one of the senior managers at the North Hollywood Company, 41 sets. They build scenery for productions. Mike, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. Um, nice to talk with you. Um, let, let what me, do you want to know about what what we're going through? Yes, well, so let's start at the, at the kind of basic level here, Mike. Uh, how big of a company? How many people work there? How long have you been in business? We have 10 people in the company that are our main crew. And we've been in business for roughly 20 years. And these are skilled. These are skilled professionals, uh, correct? They be correct. Yeah. And we crew up larger than that for for large scale projects. So, so, are you already feeling the impact? Because the Writers Guild strike, of course, uh, is now in its uh, what fourth month, and now SAG after. Nobody knows how long that's going to go on for. Are you are you already feeling it? Are you making plans? What? We, we absolutely are feeling it. Uh, one movie that we were supposed to do went to Bulgaria because of the writer's strike. So, and and so you are not able to do something uh, overseas. You don't have that capability. And we have the capability to do it, but they just decided to take the whole production over there. Right, and right. It, For the cost, I, I imagine. So. Can, yeah. can your business, if this strike goes on, as some people think it might, the SAG after strike, that is, for several months. Is there a point uh, where your business just can't survive? We're resilient and we're hoping to be able to make it through. We're not planning on on quitting, but we've we've had to resort to doing things. Years ago, we started getting into doing podcasts and things like that. Um, but all of our television and film stuff has come to a complete stop. So we're at least 50% down from last year. And the last month and change, we've been running a skeleton crew and doing four hours a day here and there. Um, so it's, it's a vast reduction from last year where we were full speed ahead. Do you care to estimate how long do you think you can hold out? 
I think we're in a position to hold out until the till the turn of the year and and um, like I said, we're resilient. We're not going to give up, but uh, we don't know what the future is going to hold. And according to what we're seeing, it looks like this could go on until as as far out as into the new year. So um, everyone that I've been talking to, including event companies that we do a lot of work with, are saying that they're very affected by it. All, all of our friends who have companies that are in the same business as us are very slow right now. All the production trucks are parked, all the um, the trailers, the you know, the caterers, everybody is is basically stopped right now. And, so then that's and I was gonna say, Mike, I, I would imagine that it's it's not just you, of course, because you in turn to build the sets that you have to build you in, in turn have to go to your vendors, right, to get material, so you're not ordering from them either. Correct. Oh. Yeah, and so, yeah, they, they said that they're pretty slow right now as well. All right, Mike Orth, uh, one of the senior managers at the uh, North Hollywood Company. 41 sets, they build uh, scenery for productions. Okay, we decided uh, last segment, if you weren't with us, that Furby the toy was definitely in the cute category maybe ugly but cute ugly cute ugly cute but it is now getting a makeover and we'll talk about that you're listening to kdx in depth with i'm rob archer i was about to say with rob archer i'm charles feldman that's That's, completely wrong and a bit schizophrenic yeah it's strange yeah um how would you celebrate your 25th birthday well you know what i did uh my family took me out to a concert uh we saw uh mozart uh conducting uh, one of his symphonies, and it was a great time. Oh, really? Yeah, that that was that's very classic. Because I'm old. Yeah, no, no, that's very. I, I think for my 25th birthday, I think I, uh, I I got sick at a party and like threw up all over the street. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I did. Uh, but if you're Furby, that weird little furry toy launched in 1998, you get a makeover. And we're going to find out how that makeover uh, has gone because uh, we, we decided it was ugly cute. So is it more ugly cute or has it gotten more beautiful? Help us answer the question is top toy consultant Chris Byrne, who goes by the name of The Toy Guy. Thanks for joining us. It's fun to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so give us your assessment. Uh, if Furby is improved, uh, cuter, cute, more cute, ugly, what is it? Well, I think it's much more, it's much cuter and it's much more fantastical than it, than it was before. And I think part of that is because the technology has gotten so uh, small and so sophisticated that they can make it look better than it did before. I mean, it kind of looked like a, you know, a big croquette with hair on it originally <laughs> and, and, you know, and those eyes and the lips because you were basically wrapping technology in fur. Now, because the technology has gotten so advanced, they can make this adorable, fantastical creature. And it really is cute. What is it that it can do that it didn't do before? I can launch the space shuttle. No. I would buy that, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, people were afraid that it was going to steal secrets and stuff. It's, it's, it's more interactive than it was before. It's, and it's got an off switch. Um, it's more, it's more oh, interactive <laughs> than it was before. It's got more uh, technology in it. it. It's still basically the same place. Because it's all about having a, a good friend and that the friend becomes more sophisticated in the way that you, you when you play with it. 
before it was all it was a lot about nurturing now it's more about having a peer who could be this alien who could be whatever but um it's it's as i said more fantastical than it was before it doesn't look quite so much like a, a lump covered with fur with eyes on it. That sounds kind of fearful, though. I mean, if this thing is more interactive, I mean, I have this worry that uh, I'm going to talk to it and the Furby is going to tell me, Rob, you're abrasive and unlikable. No one likes you. Uh, it, could it ever do that? And are people concerned about but that? You know, Rob, you don't need Furby to tell you uh, that. No, I can have Charles tell me that. <laughs> I could tell you that right now. Yeah. Put put some fur on Charles and we got a yeah. life-size Furby. You know, it, it really is... Unfortunately, it is limited to what it's programmed to do, and fortunately. And, you know, it's, it's a best friend, and a best friend's never going to tell you that. A best friend's going to be supportive no matter what. And, and it, but I don't think it goes that far. It's more about learning English as it evolves. The more you play with it, the, the furbish, which was its original language, you know, dahe uwe, ahe ui. Um, oh, that's you pretty know, good. Become, yeah, you know, I'm a trained professional. Uh, a lot of it was, <laughs> was more... Uh, now it's become faster and it speaks English, so the child really feels like uh, they are teaching it and interacting with it. What age group is Furby meant for? And by the way, how much does it cost? You know, I don't know how much it's going to cost. I, 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 I really don't. I, I'm not sure. I'm, I think it's probably around 49, but, but don't quote me on that because I, I honestly don't know. But it's, it's really for kids, I would say, 6, 7, and up. Because at that age, kids really understand the nature of friendship. They feel comfortable with the technology. Of course, younger kids will want it. But I think it's, it's really the sweet spot is that is that six, seven, eight. So it's not something I would enjoy. Well, you might enjoy it. If Furby <laughs> had a huge uh, adult popular, it was hugely adult popular with adults when it came out, partially because it was such a novelty. And again, it's a novelty for this generation of kids. We're almost three generations of kids away from the original Furby, if, if you count a generation of eight years. Speaking of uh, technology getting better, you know, we've got the uh, Google devices, the Apple devices, the Alexas in our homes now that can turn on lights, uh, turn down the air conditioner. Are they going to give Furby that capability? Not at a price point that you're going to want to buy a toy at. Oh, well... <laughs> You know, I, I again, you could you could probably take your Google Home and wrap it in fur, and there goes the thing. Yeah. <laughs> does, I'm curious. Does Furby, uh, you know, like you know Barbie uh, and Ken dolls? Does it come with like a wardrobe and other stuff that you can buy or have to buy, or you just buy Furby and that's it? I think for now you buy you buy Furby and that's it. Of course, when the original came out, there were some accessories you could buy, but it's not a. It, it was more about the the combing and the hair play and being relatively self-contained. How long until Furby becomes self-aware and we all have to bow down and worship our Furby overlords? <laughs> you know, that is always the fear with these kinds of things. Whenever there's a, a, an inter interactive electronic product out there, somebody says <laughs> that that's going to happen. I, it would, you know, somebody would have to be behind it and programming it. And, and I, you know, I think it would be a, I think we're many years away from that, however. You know, it's not, I can't do that Hal yet with uh, Furby. Yeah. Do, okay. any, any, and do they have any plans to make them bigger, like a six-foot-tall Furby? <laughs> I don't think so. There were costume characters originally. I remember them walking up and down Michigan Avenue in Chicago uh, when, when the first Furby came out in 98, 99. Uh, but, no, I think that if they are successful... They will launch Furby as a character, which would obviously spin off into animation, books, costumes, oh, there's, whatever. Oh, there's going to be a bunch of franchise movies. 
uh, you know, I'm if sure they're successful it. launching the toy, it'll, you know, Fur- Furby goes to, you know, re- redo all the Annette Funicello movies, you know, Beach Blanket Furby. <laughs> Beach Blanket Furby. All right, Chris Byrne uh, goes by the name of the toy guy. Thanks for joining us. So are you going to get one of these, Charles? Uh, we should have Furby on as a guest. Oh, we should have Furby on as a co-host. You know, I like it better as a guest. Yeah, all right. It could take our jobs. <laughs> like Furby better. That's it for KDX In-Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.